Welcome to the Extraordinary Podcast. My name is Tobias Dabry. I'm your host. I am the founder and CEO of Wonder Inc. It's a strategic brand and design consultancy based in the Nordics in Europe. And uh, this podcast is all about how do you build extraordinary brands and businesses. And the reason I talk about being extraordinary is, is a deep belief that I've had throughout my life that if you want to build anything that will stand a chance to be successful in this world, you cannot be average, you cannot be lukewarm, you cannot be gray, normal, ordinary. You have to find a way to stand out, to get people's attention, and deliver massive amounts of value. That's the key to business. I call that the holy grail of business. So this podcast is devoted to the ideas, the people, the strategies that will help you take you from ordinary or a little bit different to extraordinary. And that, my friends, is the most powerful place in business. And it's a goal and strategy worth pursuing in whatever you do. I'm someone who believes so profoundly in this idea that whatever you want to accomplish in life, the best strategy is always and always to be extraordinary. In other words, you always want to stand out in ways that really matter to people, to be known for something that brings not only average levels of value, but someone who brings massive levels of value to people. In my book, let's say 80 to 95% of businesses are more or less average. Yes, I think it's a shocking thing to say, but I think there's very few that are truly extraordinary. And that is the opportunity. And that's why I'm speaking to you, because I'm guessing you are one of those people who I would call a change maker, someone who wants to make positive change happen. So maybe you're an entrepreneur, Maybe you're building your own brand and your business and you're an ambitious person and you want to look to all sources you can to get advice, to be empowered, to be inspired, to go out and create a positive difference. Or maybe you're someone working in a big corporation and you feel like you want to get ahead, you want to help the company, you want to help yourself to a better life, to build a better brand and a better business. So this podcast is for you. In the coming episodes, we will be covering subjects primarily related to brand building. But by the way, when I speak of brand building, I think brand and business are concepts that are should be very linked. So I will cover things like insights, strategy, culture, leadership, design, innovation, uh, communication. These are all things that relate to brand. And uh, in addition, I will talk about the psychological factors behind being extraordinary, the motivational factors. And just to tell you a couple things about myself, before I started as an entrepreneur, 10 years ago, uh, I was working for companies like Coca-Cola and Nike and uh, in the media and digital businesses as a management consultant for a while. But before that, I was a competitive golfer. I was even a professional golfer at some time, and I played uh, in the Nordic region where I live, and I played also in the U.S., and I, I competed around the world. One of the main themes for me as a competitive athlete was always thinking, how do I get better? How do I raise my standards? How do I become better at what I do? And so when I started uh, my working life, this was the question that I carried with me. 
how can I set myself apart? How can I become better? And so it comes natural to me to speak about these things. And so I'm hoping that this podcast series will be a little bit of a mix of, you know, personal development and motivation and the psychological factors that you need to be extraordinary in addition to the strategies and the tactics, the ideas that you can apply to build your extraordinary brand, business, or life. So thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope this will be a great journey together. My goal is to create massive amounts of value for you, and I will do it by sharing my best insights from my own experiences, from reading about 1,000 to 1,500 books over, my, over the course of my career, and I will bring on some extraordinary guests. So I'm excited to present to you the first guest on the Extraordinary Podcast, and it's none other than Joe Pine. Joe Pine is a brilliant, brilliant thinker, writer, speaker, consultant, on business. I think for me, his main contribution for all the books he's written on various topics, for me, he is Mr. Experience Economy. So he is someone who at least helped me understand how value is created through experiences. But he's contributed, of course, so much more than that. I think you'll find when you listen to this whole interview that there's so much there's so much insight here that you might even want to stop the podcast here and there. <laughs> and I even suggest bring out your pen and your notebook because he's delivering such gold nuggets in this interview. So I hope you enjoy it. And thanks again for listening. Here we go. So in this episode, I'm talking to none other than Joe Pine. And uh, he is, of course, the best-selling author of... Uh, Books such as The Experience Economy, Authenticity, Mass Customization, uh, The Loss of Managing, and Infinite Possibility. And he's also a TED speaker. He's uh, been featured in numerous articles on Harvard Business Review, more than I can remember. And uh, he's <laughs> probably most <laughs> famous for his work on the experience economy. And uh, also, he is one of my favorite thinkers and authors who have helped me really navigate the complexity of some some uh, some difficult uh, theories when it comes to, to competition. So great to have you. Th welcome so much to the podcast. It's an honor to have you, Joe. Thank you, Tobias. And it's, uh, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate what you had to say. <laughs> Thank you. First, I'd like to ask, since you've written many different books, and uh, if you think <clears throat> there is a common theme or if there's something like a, a purpose or mission behind it all that you've had uh, throughout your long and, and uh, career. Well, yes. I mean, the, the basic theme behind everything is how to help companies create greater economic value for their customers. And from the very beginning, the focus, my focus has been on individual customers, individual living, breathing customers. It came from my work uh, when I discovered mass customization when I was a strategic planner back at IBM in the late 1980s. Uh, and in fact, through to the progression of economic value, in fact, if there's which is the basis of the experience economy. If there is one word that sort of summarizes it all, it, you know, about how you create greater economic value is individualization. 
as you get yeah. closer and closer to that individual living, breathing customer, closer and closer to exactly what they want, when they want it, how they want it. And if you're able to do that, then you're going to be able to create a, a sustainable competitive advantage. Great. So I think you mentioned the progression of economic value, and I think that, that's a model I love, and I see people quoting that <laughs> still today in, in, in meetings where I go. Uh, they don't always remember to give you credit for it, and sometimes I've actually reminded people, like, <laughs> you know what, you actually didn't create that model just in front of me. I actually right. know the person who did it. Well, anyway, so I think, I think that's a fantastic model, and uh, so maybe you could open that up a little bit. and. and and, uh, yeah. uh, sure, sure. And, and uh, let, let me tell you a real quick story. I was once uh, doing a workshop for a hospital here in the U.S., and one of the um, uh, people who was also you know, doing a, a talk there uh, uh, came up to me beforehand and said, you know, my company spent a lot of money and time in developing these ideas, and I just want to make sure they don't leave the room. And I said, okay, I won't say a word about what you have. And I, and I said, now, I've spent a lot of time and money myself in developing these ideas, and I hope they very much leave the room. I hope you take them. I hope you use them because they're going to benefit you uh, as well as the company here that we're here for. And, in fact, if you cite me, that's great. But if you just steal it, that's okay, too, because I'm out to change the world. Oh, there, so. that's fantastic. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk about the progression of economic value because that seems like the very foundation of of the things that you talk about in your books. Yeah, well, the the, the progression of economic value starts in the beginning, and that's with commodities. Commodities are things you pull out of the ground, grow in the ground, raise in the ground. You know, animal, mineral, vegetable, and then you extract them out of the ground and sell them on the open marketplace. And commodities are the basis of the agrarian economy that lasted for millennia. Uh, but along came the Industrial Revolution in the late 1700s, and where we shifted from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy, where goods became the most important thing that people valued. Uh, and that particularly uh, heightened with the, the system of mass production that Henry Ford uh, put together in 1913. And then the latter half of the 20th century, though, we shifted into a service economy, where services became the most predominant economic offering, where services were what consumers wanted. And then goods became commoditized, you know, treated like a commodity where people cared only about price. Right? Mm -hmm. And and so what happened then is if you look at what's happened with the service economy now is that services are increasingly commoditized as well. You know, long distance telephone service sold on price, 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 fast food restaurants with all their value pricing. And the Internet could even commoditize services. If you look at long, or excuse me, if you look at financial services, you know, it used to cost several hundred dollars to buy or sell a block of shares with a full service broker. Can today cost in the U.S. as low as three dollars with an Internet based broker? And what that means is that goods and services are no longer enough. Goods and services are everywhere becoming mere commodities. So that means it's time to move to a new level of economic value to go beyond the goods and services to staging experiences for our customers. And, and, and so that's what's happened is we shifted into an experience economy, an economy where experiences are becoming the predominant economic offering. And, and the most important thing to understand about that is that, that experiences are, in fact, a distinct economic offering, as distinct from services as services are from goods. Experiences are basically when you use goods as props and services as a stage to engage each and every person in an inherently personal way and thereby create a memory, which is the hallmark for the experience. Hmm. Awesome. I, I think what I really, what I really like, uh, took out of that when you said it's a distinct economic offering, and I think uh, at least in this part of the world where I'm in the Nordics, it seems like people are getting the experience economy and it's talked about everywhere. 
And, uh, but I don't think that everyone understands that it's a distinct economic offering, in other words, that they're charging for the experience. I think everyone is kind of emphasizing that you need to, to provide a great experience. Do, do you, is that something that you, you come across? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it is key to understand that it's a distinct economic offering. And economically, what, dis, what distinguishes uh, experiences from services, services from goods, goods from commodities, is what you charge for it. That in fact, as a business, you are what you charge for. You know, if you charge for undifferentiated stuff, you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities your people perform, you're in the services business. But economically, you're in the experience business if and only if you charge for time. The time your customers spend with you, because that's what they value with an experience. I mean, you, you wouldn't imagine going to a concert or a play or a movie or a sporting event or a theme park and not pay admission. Why? <laughs> because you know that these are experiences. That's the time you spend there that, that, that's, that's of value. And in the same way, all experiences eventually need to align what they charge for with what their customers value. And, and you know, so many give away the experience today. Uh, but when you align what you charge for with what your customers value, that means you're charging for time, whether it's an admission fee or a membership fee or per play fee or some other way of, of charging for time. So it's like time well spent. Is that true? I remember you wrote in a, re a recent article in Harvard Business Review about time well saved. Can you, can you elaborate about, uh, on that a little bit? Yeah, well, it, it, it is, you know, since time is the most important distinction between um, uh, services and experiences, you know, every, between every economic offering, there's a set of distinctions. There's some gray areas, of course. But one of the key ones with, between services and experiences is time. <clears throat> that with services, what people are looking for is time well saved. Mm -hmm. that they want to buy things at the greatest possible convenience. They want it at the lowest possible cost so they can, they can take their hard-earned money and their hard-earned time and spend it on the experiences that they savor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is really time well spent. You know, so the question is, are you providing time well saved you know, which is a, a, a valid strategy. Not everybody has to shift into experiences, but but then you have to do it very well. You do have to commoditize yourself. You do have to automate as much as possible, get rid of as many people as possible, figure out how you can t you provide that time well saved, or you should shift up into this progression into, into the experience economy and provide uh, time well spent. Mm, great. And how well do you think that uh, companies are making the progression now? I mean, you wrote the book in late in the late nineties. Was it 1998, <laughs> That you ninety nine was the book. Ninety nine, yeah. And and it was yeah. it's quite remarkable how spot on. I don't know what was it that I have to ask you this first. How how did you come up with this concept? Was it just like out there in the times and you just captured it, or how did you come across this because it was so uh, well timed? Well, this, this, this gets back to the basic uh, uh, trend at the heart of the progression of economic value is individualization, is getting closer and closer to the individual customer. If you, if you think about it, good, commodities, goods, services exist outside of people. Experiences happen inside of people. Mm -hmm. It's our reaction to the events that are staged in front of us. So they're, they're inherently personal. And so where I discovered is for my initial work on mass customization, which was my first book that came out in 1993. So that was 25 years ago. Wow. And, you know, that's about efficiently serving customers uniquely, giving everybody exactly what they want, but doing it at a price they're willing to pay. And uh, what um, um, I realized eventually is that 
after the book came out is that if you customize a good, you automatically turn it into a service. You know, if you look at the classic economic distinctions, goods are standardized, services are customized. They're done just Mm. for an individual person. Goods are inventoried after production, but services are delivered on demand when the customer says this is what they want. And goods are inventoried after production, services or did I say that already? Delivered on demand? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Goods, goods are tangible and services are intangible. But an integrated part of mass customization is the intangible service of helping customers figure out what it is that they want. So if you customize a good, you're, you're automatically in the service business, helping people define, design, and then make and deliver that individual good for them. Right. So someone once asked me, what, is, what does mass customization turn a uh, service into? And I shot back that mass customization automatically turns a service into an experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. And I went, whoa, that sounds good. <laughs> and then you <laughs> so discovered it. i got to write that down. You know? <laughs> and I started to think about it and figure it out. And, and I realized it was true that, that if you design a service that is so appropriate for a particular person, exactly the service that they need at this moment in time, then you can't help it. Make them go wow and turn it into a memorable event. Turn it into an experience. Hmm. So, uh, so that was the genesis of the experience economy. I realized that the experiences were, in fact, a distinct economic offering. So you would have an economy based off of that, and and that's why you see, you know, 20 years later, people still discovering the experience economy, uh, still figuring it out, and and thinking it's brand new, uh, and because um, it is not a fad. Uh, that my partner Jim Gilmore identified in the book. It is a fundamental change in the very mm-hmm. fabric of the economy. Great. And now, and then, now back to the question I was asking you before. So, how well do you think uh, companies are adopting this idea, and how well are they competing with experiences today? Well, it's it's you know it's fits and starts. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how much has changed since then, since 1999. You know, for example, the 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 thing we got the pushback the most on back when we came out with the book was this notion of charging emission. You know, we said retailers would charge emission and restaurateurs would charge emission, and we had just sort of a, pseudo, a few pseudo examples outside of the you know the movies, the plays, the sporting events, and so forth. But now there are dozens and dozens of companies that are charging emission, not necessarily for the entire place, but for uh, places within the place. You know, there, but there is a, there's a bookstore in Porto, Portugal, for example, that is so beautiful that people want to come in and just see the bookstore. Uh, and, uh, and so what they did is they start, started charging a three euro admission fee just to get in <laughs> and still line up to be able to get into this, this bookstore. Now, if you, if you actually buy a book in there, they'll give you the three euros off, you know, any purchase that you make, wow. but they had mission fee and it sends a signal. This is a place worth experiencing. Wow. Uh, you have places like REI, uh, Recreational Equipment Incorporated, that has a climbing mountain that they charge. Uh, uh, it's now like $25 or $30 to be able to climb the mountain inside of the store. You have American Girl places with a cafe in the store and a photo shoot and a, and a, and a hair salon. Uh, you have uh, brand lands that have created, you know, manufacturers that have created experiences that they charge admission for, like the Heineken experience in Amsterdam, the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin, uh, Volkswagen's Autostadt theme park in Wolfsburg, Germany. Uh, there are restaurants that charge admission, like Next in Chicago. 
uh, where you have to get online, reserve a certain time, pay pay your fee in advance, print out a ticket, and then bring your ticket at the right time, and then they'll let you in, and everything, all the meals for free. It's just subsumed within the admission fee, you know. And I could go on and on with with more and more examples. So, so that's wow. how you know a distinct economic offering. Again, it's something that you charge for. Wow. And you either bake it in the price or you charge like a, a admission like they did in the Portugal in the bookstore, right? Right, right. Now, and what most companies do is they bake it in the price. You know, my favorite example has always been Starbucks because mm -hmm. they take a quantity of a coffee bean and which can be a good package you go to the grocery store, which can be a service that you buy at a kiosk somewhere or a convenience store, and they turned it into an experience. But they don't charge for it. And again, eventually you have to stop giving it away and align what you charge for with what your customers value. So there is actually a cafe in uh, the UK, a small chain of at least 10 stores that I know of, 10 places, uh, where they don't charge for coffee. The coffee's free. They charge for time. Wow. You, you clock in, they charge about eight pence per minute, right? Eight pennies per minute. Uh, and then you have as much coffee, you can have the Danish and that. Now, it's not going to be one of those big uh, frou-frou drinks that you get at Starbucks. You're going to get plain old coffee there. Uh, but it is free. It's subsumed within the price. You know, and eventually, I think Starbucks is going to have to figure out how to do that at least for some time. Wow. You know, but to, to, to get back to your point about yeah. you know, those are all the companies that are doing it well that figured it out. There are many more that haven't. You know, the, the, the Harvard Business Review digital article that you mentioned that mm -hmm. I wrote in December, you know, that they commissioned for me to write something about retail because of how many companies in the U.S. retailers were going bankrupt. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I think retail is an industry that is really losing out, that the Internet is gobbling up more and more of, of uh, people's uh, retail dollars because they provide time well saved. You know, particularly the Amazon, uh, Amazons of the world. And the only reason that's going to happen to go into a physical store is if you provide time well spent. Because I'm going to be able to get it cheaper and I'm going to be able to get it greater convenience someplace else. Mm, so exactly. retailers, for the most part, are not enough of them anyway, have figured this out. And they're the ones that really need to focus. Am I going to provide time well saved, in which case I'm competing against Amazon? And Walmart, you know, and the 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 carefors of, of the world, and Alibaba in China, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Or am I going to provide time well spent and give people a reason to come into my experience place? Yeah, I was actually it reminds me I was uh, in New York maybe like six weeks ago with my wife just before Christmas, and we have mm -hmm. two daughters, three and seven, and and uh, my wife dragged me to the American Girl store, and I saw this oh. actually you were mentioning, and I could not believe it. It's like close to Times Square. And like this super expensive real estate, and I'm looking like, is is this really? Am I, am I looking at a hair salon for dolls <laughs> at like, <laughs> you know, hundred thousand per month rent? I don't know what, what that space would cost, but it's it's quite amazing actually. And uh, right. yeah, I mean, I, it it, uh, it, it is. You, you were in New York at the best time of the year. You know, Christmas in New York is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yes, the American Girl Place. It's right on Fifth Avenue. It's across from Saks Fifth Avenue yeah. and the Rockefeller Center. It's one of the most expensive real estate places in the world. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed this, uh, but do you know actually what was the part of the store that actually faced Fifth Avenue, right? The most most expensive window real estate. It was actually the books. Oh. Right. They had their store there 
Uh, and then and then the salons and the photo shoots and the cafes are all up, you know, up further. Right. And that's because it was actually founded by a school teacher who wanted to teach girls about American history. Yes. So I, that's I read the, that. Yeah. It's uh, awesome. Yeah. The, of American Girl, and so they put the books right up front to say that this is about, you know, it's not just about having fun with dolls, it's about learning about history. Wow. Awesome. That's really impressive, I think. I mean, you could just see, like, when we walked around the city with those, with those, uh, you know, American Girl dolls, uh, actually, literally next to them, and they're huge, by the way, especially <laughs> when you want to bring yes. them back to Finland. And uh, what, what do they cost now? $105? Uh, well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I think they... I would say somewhere around a hundred dollars or or more, but the, but I probably ended up spending six hundred dollars or something in the right. store because of course you can't just get the doll; you have to get like all these, uh, you know, like uh, oh yeah, you could you get all the clothes and everything. But the best thing I thought was that you could bet a matching you could you could buy a matching attire for your daughter and the doll, and of course right. we did that. And uh, yeah, so it was it was I was in awe and, and a little bit shocked, and I felt abused as I walked out. <laughs> well, tell tell your tell your daughters to be us that they are now honorary American girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, and uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I should ask when we talk about retail, and I, I definitely agree with everything you're saying. I mean, I we see that here as well. It's very difficult to compete in retail spaces. Uh, uh, when I when I think of the experience economy and how experiences are talked about a lot, I mean, it seems like the digitalists kind of took the concept to heart and they kind of ran with it and owned it in some ways because yep. you have UX, you have CX, and most of the time when you refer to experiences, people think of something digital. Like, what's your take on that? Well, yeah, it is something, I mean, that, that has happened. All of these these are basically manifestations of the experience economy that have happened since we first talked about it in 1999. I mean, you didn't hear much about UX before that. It may have been uh, you know, a term that was around, but it exploded because people recognized the value of experiences. So the reason people originally got on the internet back in the 1990s was because of the experience. That's often what they're looking for. Today, you see that most recognized in social media, uh, where people value the time they're spending there, uh, catching up, learning, presenting themselves, and recording their memories on Instagram, and uh, you know, they're, uh, as they say, uh, on Instagram and so forth by taking pictures and posting them, as well as the games that people play, you know, through the internet. That's a big uh, experience that they have on there. Uh, and so there's been a big thrust in, in UX about making that user experience. Uh, more engaging and more valuable to customers. Uh, mm. In the same way, there's been the focus in operations on uh, on CX, on customer experience, which which people sometimes equate with what we're talking about. It really is something different. That uh, that CX is about uh, how do we make things nice and easy and convenient, and uh, and and that's not what true distinctive experiences are about. When you think of experiences as a distinct economic offering. You know, they're not just nice. I mean, nice is nice, mm. but rarely does nice rise to the level of memorability. And again, mm. if you want to create a true distinctive experience, you've got to uh, create that memory within people. It has to be memorable. If you look at um, making things easy, that means you often routinize things to make them easy on us so we can deliver the services that the, the customers want. But rarely does that create a level of personalness. You know, the, the, mm. the, the experiences are inherently personal. Uh, and and routinizing things makes them good for everybody, but not great for me as an individual. And then finally, convenience, again, is the antithesis of what I'm talking about. Convenience is spending less time 
with people when when what they want is more time. They want that time to be to be time well spent. Uh, so that is a distinction, although you see the rise of the language being used. And one other one I'll mention is you see a, a lot of talk in marketing about experience marketing. You know, so you have the digital side, you have the operation side, you mm. have the marketing side. True. And experience marketing is all well and good, but but often that's just make our mailers more dimensional. Let's evoke the senses on our website and our, our ads and so forth. And what, uh, what we encourage people to do is create actual experience, marketing experiences, experiences that do the job of marketing by generating demand for the offerings. And that's what all of the companies that we've been talking about from the brand lands like Heineken and Guinness and Volkswagen to the American girl places and, mm. and even Starbucks is that they're using the experience to get people to want to spend time there. And then the more time they spend with you, the more money they're going to spend as a result buying goods uh, as memorabilia for the experiences that they, uh, that they have, as you saw at the American girl place in New York. Yeah, and, and would it be fair to say then that like if the digital, like the digital people who talk about experiences and they basically then maybe provide a, a good you know service online, but it's not multi-dimensional. It doesn't like maybe want to uh, make you want to spend more time with them. But I I'm just trying to make a link here to your book Infinite Possibility, and that was all about mm -hmm. like uh, the multiverse and and having so many different uh, <laughs> you know, like dimensions of experience is is that right. is that a link to, that you've made like between uh, you know well, yeah, yeah in fact it's it's because of the rise of digital technology that i went back you know 10 or 15 years after the experience economy came out and said you know what does all of this mean how do we make sense of what's going on digitally and so i came up with this model that that you mentioned uh, from my book infinite possibility uh, called the multiverse Yes, And the multiverse basically takes off on recognition that all of our experience within the universe is within, you know, all of our reality-based experiences are within three, the three fundamental dimensions of the universe, which is time, space, and matter. You know, everything we experience is in a certain uh, place in, in space. It's with certain things of matter around us. And, and uh, of course, it's experiences happen through time. Time is the, the key dimension of experience. But what digital technology, I figured out, allows us to do is basically flip each of those on its head. Mm -hmm. That instead of dealing with matter, for example, we deal with what I'll call no matter. No matter is digital, whereas matter is physical. It's atoms, right? Digital yeah. is bits. And increasingly, we can use digital technology to enhance our experience. You think about, there's a chapter in the book on augmented reality. And augmented reality is basically taking digital bits and, and, and enhancing our real-world experience, overlaying them yeah. with, with digital information and images that enhance that real-world experience. And so if you can have matter and no matter, you can have space and no space. Space is about the real places that we inhabit. I'm in my home office uh, here in Minnesota. You are in your uh, studio there in Helsinki, Finland. Yeah. Uh, and we're in these physical places, but yet we're having this virtual experience thanks to the Internet that digitizes our voice and spreads them out across this line so we can have a conversation, which you can then record and then share with others thanks to digital technology. And all of those places in which this recording is going to be heard are virtual places. They're places that do not exist in reality. And you think about when we play games and how we drop into virtual places, whether it's a, a totally immersive game like uh, EVE Online or whether it's a very casual game like uh, Candy Crush on our phones. Yeah. You know, we, can, we can have experiences not possible in reality because we can have virtual places. So you have matter, no matter, space, no space. You can have time and no time. 
Time is the actual events that unspool before us moment by moment by moment. And there's a real tyranny to time. You know, there's, there's just no way to get out of it. That it just has to. You know, in fact, there's a there's a physicist joke that 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 there's nothing about time. It proceeds along at the approximate uh, pace at of one second per second. You know, so <laughs> so you get that. So uh, so the, but then what is no time? No time is any way you get to play with time. It's when you have autonomous events, the way you hyperlink things on the internet and have conversations and asynchronous uh, experiences. It's the way you can uh, experience the past, you know, at a living history museum or envision the future in some way. It's it, when you get into flow, you, you really lose all track of time. You know, so there's all these different ways. That was the one surprising thing when I wrote the book is, is figuring out this myriad of ways to be able to uh, play with time and get outside of it. So, so all told, this then is is not just a universe anymore. This is what I call the multiverse. It is a framework of three dimensions, of matter and no matter, of space and no space, of time and no time, and and companies can use this to be able to figure out what are the all the ways that we can create economic value for individual customers by using digital technology across all six of these, you know, the, these, uh, I call them experience design variables, all six of these endpoints of the three dimensions. And they're just, they're, you know, I called the book Infinite Possibility because there is now infinite possibility before us that we Absolutely, can now yeah. do anything that we can imagine. Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful. I, I recommend that book, by the way, to anyone. I mean, it's, it's really eye opening because it's like you said, it's infinite because there's no there's no, um, you know, supply that you have to play by or, or something. You know, it's just like you know, bits and digits and you, know, you can you can take it as far as you want, basically. Uh, if, if we progress this conversation a little bit toward like what it takes to actually compete an experience. And I like when I consult with companies, I run into you know, run into this problem quite a lot where. It's quite easy to compete when you, when you do like launch products and do branding and marketing, and you're basically managing a packaged product, and and uh, and it's much more complex when you actually need to get a whole organization aligned a, uh, behind a promise that uh, encompasses uh, delivering or creating and delivering an experience. So it's like it just feels like a much more complicated game, and I feel like personally. In my experience, uh, that's where most companies are, are failing at the moment. Not that they don't get it, but they can't really come together to execute or create mm -hmm. and execute, I should say. Well, the, the, you know, getting it is, of course, the most important thing. You know, the, the initial thing is that you've got to have the right mindset. Uh, you have to decide what business are you really in. Uh, and then you can go thinking about how you create that great experience. But, it's, but you're right. I mean, it's very different than manufacturing goods and then even from delivering services. It, it has to be very much customer-centric. You've got to focus on the customer, or the, I like to call them guests of the experience. Uh, you've got to recognize that you have to create environments in which you can generally immerse your customers, uh, and that takes different skills and, and different capabilities. Uh, and, and you've got to design time. Again, experience is about the design of time, and we're not used to doing that when we make goods or deliver services. So it does require a different set of talent. And it's one of the reasons why there are so many uh, companies out there to help people stage better experiences, to help them get into the experience business. Um, but, uh, but it does require, 
you know, different ways of thinking and different ways of behaving, different things that you have to do uh, because it is a different economic offering. Yeah, and so perhaps uh, uh, the listeners can go and get your book that you co-wrote with Kim Corn, The Laws of Managing, because that's really, I, mean, I remember reading about orchestration, which, which was one of the concepts, and it seems like orchestration is exactly what is needed to be able to, to fulfill and deliver those experiences, right? Yes, well, yeah, so what Kim and I have done, he co-authored Infinite Possibility with me, and we're working on a new set of ideas. The, the, the Laws of Managing book you mentioned was really a sort of draft of them, uh, but we've progressed them further, where we, you know, we're basically trying to figure out how can companies thrive forever? You know, so many companies are, you know, they're flashes in the pan, they come up and rise and then they fall down. Others have a more of a longer trajectory, but... Mm. But they're always, almost all companies are on a degenerative trajectory because they don't innovate faster than their ecosystems. And that's the key. You've got to have as much creative destruction going on inside of the firm as you have going on outside. Or eventually, all that innovation out there is going to swamp you and you will be, you will succumb to the gales of creative destruction. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so, so you have to be able to basically come up with a new way of managing, a way of managing that that uh, gets you to vitalize the company. And in fact, that's the, the, the sort of the first precondition that, that, that Kim has discovered is that you have to have a intent to vitalize. You know, most companies, particularly large companies today, they have an intent to optimize. They want to optimize everything. They want to squeeze all of the um, uh, efficiency into mm -hmm. everything. Uh, and they want to optimize everything that they're doing. And, and the and problem is, is that short-term optimization is long-term death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so you've got to, you've got, not that you never do any optimization, but you've got to do it in the context of needing to vitalize the, the company. Right. You know, one, one, one principle I think is important to understand is that, uh, and you can see it with the, the Kodaks and the blockbusters of the world, is that if you can cannibalize your own business, you're obligated to do it. Love it. <laughs> you know, Love and it. so it's not optimization. You're, you're going to sub-optimize because you're going to destroy some cash cows that you have. Yeah. But if you don't do it, somebody else is going to, and that's going to kill you at some point. Yeah, that's a, that's a um, wonderful so, little – sorry. Uh, um, I think that's a wonderful little paradox that you have that on one hand – like I think you talk about in that book, is this is this exploration versus exploitation. On one hand, you need to optimize and drive operational efficiencies. On the other hand, you need to sort of waste resources and look for new models and new value, right? Right, correct. If you if you if you're not wasting resources in the present, then you're starving resources for the future. <laughs> uh, and so you really have got to pay attention to what you're doing. You've got to explore in addition to uh, to exploit. Which means you're seeking out new ways of creating value, uh, and and you really have to orchestrate those too, right? Your point about orchestration, yeah. it's really orchestrating, explore, and exploit because these things don't play well together. Exploit tends to starve exploration of resources. So how do you foster balance and integrate these two together hmm. so you are succeeding both in the present without starving uh, the future? Fantastic. That's like business poetry right there. That's like, that's, so, that's so that's so uh, yeah I, I I feel that in the you know in my spine every week uh, I'm dealing with that and it's fantastic I think like if you can solve that and bring a model that's what the world needs I mean I think to manage exploration with exploitation I mean, it's just it's just so fundamental uh, in, in these times especially hey, I wanna I wanna uh, uh, finish off uh, 
soon. I, I want to ask something since I'm, I'm um, and uh, many of our listeners are, are into brands and branding. And uh, what, what I do a lot is try to really tie, you know, brand with business and not make it about uh, logos and messages and things, but really, you know, about competition and differentiation. And so when you talk about experience, you don't use the word brand a lot, but like, what, what, do, you, what do you think is the relationship? Like, how do you, how do you think about branding and, and, and the relationship between uh, brand and experience? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I just, I've just never taken to the word brand. I don't know what it is. I've just never been a brand guy. You know, I care right. about companies and enterprises and that. But certainly brands are something that, that are out there and they're very important. And and what I think is that brands need to uh, increasingly be about the value we create for individual customers. The yeah. brand, you know, I, I, I do agree with folks who have said that brands really only exist in the minds of your customers. Yes. Right? And that's where experiences only exist as well. So so you can think about a brand as, as someone once put it as the promise of an experience. And then you've got to to make that experience actually match what the brand stands for, right? Uh, and refresh that that over time. Yeah. Um, so you know, brands aren't just this, this this static thing that you can just define and think that you can control. You know that, that that's just not possible. Yeah, exactly. So experiences, in other words, are a way. They're the cause, and brands are the effect. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so that's perhaps how they're linked. I mean, they seem they're very linked. Then, in other words, right? Like experiences, right. how well, you build brands. Would you agree with that? Right. Or, yeah. Yes, yes, I think so, and, I, and it relates to my work on authenticity as well, um, where where you've got the, the the brand. If the brand is the promise of an experience, the actual experience, then if it matches that, that's where you're going to find. If you think of those as Venn diagrams, right? That middle yeah. where the promise matches the actuality that it is what it says it is, and then people will be able to uh, perceive it as authentic. Wow. Well, that's, that's so many so many great ideas. I have, I have so many notes here I have to go through. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, digest all of this. Uh, let me ask you, uh, in closing, what are you working on right now, and, uh, and what's, what's next for Joe Pine? Well, in addition to um, what I'm working on with uh, Kim Korn and, and, and coming out with a you know, full book treatment of, of how companies can thrive forever, uh, I'm also working with another set of colleagues, uh, uh, Dave Norton and Mary Putnam of uh, Stone Mantle, on how digital technology gives us superpowers. Wow. And figuring out, uh, you know, if you think about it, that, that the things that digital technology enables today what you can do would have seemed five or 10 years ago, like a superpower. And yes. so just building out, you know, what all these possibilities are, you know, it builds on my work on infinite possibility as well as uh, Dave's and his wonderful book, digital context 2.0. Wow. Uh, and then the third thing I'm working on uh, at a low level, but I really want to get to is sort of a sequel to my mass customization book of 25 years ago on, uh, on everything I know about it today. And the biggest thing there, I recognize, is that that if you really think about it, as people commonly think of it, there are no markets. Right? There are mm. no markets, only customers. Yes. Markets are fiction. They, they they really do not exist. You know, they 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 uh, they only are there for comp companies who don't want to treat their customers as unique individuals. They truly are. 
but a customer is not a market or a segment or a niche or a generation or a persona or a class or any other agglomeration of anonymous buying units of indeterminate size. <laughs> a customer is a living, breathing, as I said earlier, a living, breathing individual person. Or if you sell to other businesses, an active corporeal individual enterprise. Yeah. And so I believe that companies must ascend to the proposition that all customers are unique, right? Undeniably, unremittingly, unalterably unique. And so, therefore, we must stop marketing and mm. instead start customer. Sorry, I lost a start what? Sorry? Start customering. Customering. That's a new word right. you invented. I just invented that word. That's correct. Actually, Fantastic. my partner, Jim Gilmore, invented the word. Wow. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, if there are no markets, only customers, then we've got to stop marketing and start customering. <laughs> and and awesome. so I want to I want to fill out what that all means, what it means to customer instead yeah. of to market. So customer now becomes a verb. Yeah, exactly. I verb I verb that down. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. What is it that drives all of you? I mean, you have so many things going on. What is it that really drives you? What is it that you want the world to to it, get from you? It you know really is I'm I'm about right my purpose in life is to figure out what is going on in the world of business, and then develop frameworks that first describe what's happening, and then prescribe what companies can do about it, so that again to come first full circle from where we started to help them create greater economic value for their individual customers. Perfect, I think that's a that's a great place to to stop by I, I still want to ask uh what is the best way to get in contact with you and engage with with your thinking your work sure you can uh you can reach me at our website strategichorizons.com strategichorizons with an s.com there you've got my bio partner uh, bio of my partner jim gilmore uh you can uh, learn about our offerings such as our uh experience county expert certification program uh, you can take a look at all of our books there. You can look at uh, my latest thoughts of uh, you know set of blog posts that I put on there and, and what I'm thinking about now. Uh, so it's a way to sort of understand what I'm about and then see how it applies to to you and your enterprise. Oh, great! So strategichorizons.com. That's the best way, right? And then you're on Twitter, still, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Twitter is <laughs> very simple at Joe Pine, J-O-E-P-I-N-E at Joe Pine. Fantastic. Hey, Joe, thanks so much uh, for, for all this wonderful wisdom and uh, great talking to you. Thanks so much and good luck with all those projects you have going on. Thank you, Tobias. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you.